Hello, everybody. I hope you had a good weekend. I didn't. Never said that one, I don't think. I'm actually uh, disturbed by uh, what is going on. I don't think I'm the only one, obviously. I'm very disturbed on every level possible. There are a lot of villains, and while I continue to oppose sending American troops in, I made that clear from the outset, we pay a price for watching rapists rape. It, you, you can't deny that. You, people don't like to live with cognitive dissonance. It's understandable, but it's not admirable. We are essentially watching a country. You don't like the word raped? Hmm. I'm not sure why not. All right. Destroyed? What word would, what word would one prefer? We're watching. We have been rendered largely impotent by the threat of nuclear weapons and by the environmentalist movement, the most destructive movement of all the left-wing movements, and that's saying something because there's tremendous competition. The, de- the destruction of youth uh, is, uh, is up there as well. It is not possible to overstate the damage the environmentalist movement has done to the, to the Western world and its role in making this invasion possible. It's the subject of my column that's coming out tomorrow. I have read and I have read and I have read and a lot of people write about how well, you have to understand why Putin is doing this. Would we want Russian arms in Mexico? He doesn't want NATO on his borders. Right. And this is the analogy that many give, mostly people on the right, incidentally. Interestingly enough, I'm not sure why, but it just just works out that way in this case. So it's a very famous chicken or the egg. Which one came first? Do people want to be armed on his borders in order to threaten Russia or in order to defend themselves against a threatening Russia? It's as simple as that, no? Is Poland threatening Russia? Or how about mighty Lithuania? And the Tiger of Estonia. Not to mention, oh, Moldova. Whew. An armed Moldova is an existential threat to Russia. You know what threatens Russia? There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal this weekend with a major, major Russian scholar, Robert Service. Did you happen to catch that? So I'd like to uh, read to you one line from Mr. Professor Service. 
It rankles Mr. Putin that Ukraine would seek to join the West, and not merely because he wants it as a satellite state. He also can't afford to allow life to a neighboring Slav state, which has even a smidgen of democratic development. His Russian people might get dangerous ideas. It's not Western arms that threaten Putin. It's Western values. That's a good line. That's an important line. In that, in that same way, Taiwan and Hong Kong is even better. Hong Kong threatened it's a little tiny island, Hong Kong, or peninsula. Part of it was island, part of it peninsula, threatened communist China. Communist regimes don't like to have free countries bordering them, especially if they speak the same language. Or, in the case of Ukraine, a similar language. Fellow Slavs who have free elections can't have that. 1 8 Prager 776. What is it now? We're, we're approaching what, a million and a half refugees, is that correct? One day, people living a life, I want you to try to imagine this. You're living a normal life, and then the next day you're, you're bombed out of your house. And you leave your, your husband, son, brother, father behind, having no clue if you will ever see him again. If you go to Poland, there's at least some degree of linguistic familiarity. Not much, but some. Go to Hungary, there is zero. Ukrainian is as related to Hungarian as as English is. Because, in fact, nothing is related to modern Hungarian. Hungarian and Finnish come from the same sources, apparently. But they have nothing in common. Hmm. Russia, Putin believed that he has a stranglehold on on Western European energy, specifically the strongest country on the European continent, Germany. And he did, because Angela Merkel was an idiot. I mean, truly, the woman was such a fool. It, it, I'm sorry to say this, because clearly there are wonderful people in Germany, but as a rule, Germany produces an excess number of fools and has for a very long time. I don't know why. She was a gigantic fool. Fools, by the way, often mean well. So it doesn't mean a thing, of course. I just wanted to note that. Let's end nuclear power. Because people, unless you are strong-willed and know something, actually know something, people are in thrall of the environmentalist movement. 
which is a crackpot, sick, destructive, arrogant movement. To take care of the environment is good. To be a professional environmentalist is almost always bad. Really, really, really bad. Because its aim is to restructure society. That's why they're against nuclear power. Nuclear power does not restructure society. It allows us to go on living exactly as we are, just using nuclear instead of fossil fuel power. France, I think, is 60% powered by nuclear power. Why isn't Germany? Because Germany is always wrong, as my motto has been for many years. They're in thrall of idiotic ideas. The Germans produce idiotic ideas and have since Karl Marx. Even though, well, can't blame Germany for on Karl Marx. Blame a couple of countries, including when he spent his time in London. But uh, Engels, is, his partner, was uh, was German. That's where the the ideas flowered. They didn't flower in England. They flowered in Germany. I don't know why. The environmentalist movement said, made it possible for Putin to say, they won't stop me. They need to heat their homes in the winter. And now... The United States, thanks to our left-wing government, is negotiating getting oil from an equally evil regime, the Iranian. That's, that's part of the reason the weekend wasn't great. I return. The Dennis Prager Show. Uh, there is so much, there is so much. The onslaught, the damage done by the left... It was uh, David Horowitz who said, I, I, I would say in the 80s, maybe earlier, the environmentalist movement is a watermelon, green on the outside and red on the inside. As usual, David Horowitz was right. It's essentially a communist movement. It, uh, I, I'm amazed that I would even say this because it's such a radical statement, and I, and I recognize that. But to the extent that communism wishes to completely reorient Western civilization and Western life, that is the characteristic, the chief characteristic of the radical environmentalist movement. There are sweet, kind, responsible environmentalists, but they have very little influence. It's the crackpots that, that the world is being existentially threatened. And every 12 years, we're told we have 12 years to go. And then 12 years pass, 12 more years to go. When religious people say the world is coming to an end, they're called fanatics. Secular people say the world is coming to an end. They're called environmentalists. But people are in thrall. This child, Thunberg, what's her first name? Greta, Greta Thunberg from Sweden, it's so so characteristic of them to place a child 
as a figurehead in their movement because their children, they see no difference like this girl has any wisdom. Did you have wisdom at her age? What I have read to you over the years, kids who can't sleep well because they're worried that life will be destroyed. Yes, life will be destroyed by the environmentalists. That should keep kids up at night, environmentalism. So now that on um, now we 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 enabled Putin because so much of the West is dependent upon his oil, especially Germany, to think that he could get away with an invasion of a country. And if we don't buy their oil, then we're going to buy Iranian oil. That's the New Deal. I'm going to have. Uh, Andy McCarthy on next hour on that subject. The deal now that they're negotiating is terrible, destructive, cowardly administration of the most corrupt president in American history. Look, I don't want to depress you because people who are depressed don't do any good. But I don't want to. I don't want to fool you into some paradisical imaginary universe that doesn't exist. A country is being destroyed in part because of the environmentalist movement. And even though we could bail out Europe with our own oil, they still oppose the pipeline from Canada. They still oppose the the safe and effective use of fracking There is, I, I don't believe that for the environmentalist movement, any price would be too high for them to acknowledge we better frack or we, we better supply liquefied gas, let alone dig for more oil. We're going to power the world with the sun and wind. The children with dreams. Children. It's really effective sun in Germany. What happens when the wind doesn't blow? Oh, God. And of course, like every single left-wing movement in history, with no exception, they suppress dissent. No matter how many scientists speak... No matter how many columns Bjorn Lomborg of Denmark writes in the Wall Street Journal, hello, almost nobody in the world is dying of heat. Hello, fewer people have died from hurricanes than in the past. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The the movement is based on models, not reality. Models. This anger you hear in me comes from the consequences that I that I see and you see of the environmentalist movement. So Ukraine is destroyed. BFD. That's their. That's the. That's the. Uh, Was it? Who's John Kerry's view? Oh, gee, that's really sad. But well, we, we can't interrupt our march toward 
green power. Clean power. These people are empty, and this is their religion. That's all it is, my friends. All the isms are the residue of the death of the Judeo-Christian religions in the West. No one is religion-free. No one. The person has not been invented. And if it isn't going to be Christianity or Judaism or LDS or, or you name it, Protestantism, Catholicism, it's going to be environmentalism or feminism or humanism or Marxism. Yes, there's always an ism. Adidas is putting out ads that transgender should compete against women. There's no price paid for their religious for their religions. So if it's if it if it completely ruins much of women's sports, they don't care. The price paid is the thing that never bothers the left including Ukraine. The Dennis Prager Show. This has been, as all of you know, an extraordinary period. We had the State of the Union, which is usually a big deal in Washington, but was completely overshadowed this year by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So we have the challenge of a war going on between Europe's largest country, Russia, and second largest country, Ukraine. Ukraine is almost the size of Texas, twice the size of California. So it's a pretty big country, 25, 26 million people. That war is still underway. And you can't quite tell right now whether Putin is looking to negotiate to a solution or whether he wants to actually conquer the whole country, which, if you think about the size of Texas, would be a big project. And I don't know that the Russians are prepared for that scale of a project. I think he's probably been shaken a little bit by the depth of the world reaction. The fact that only four other countries voted with Russia in the UN General Assembly, I think there were like 144 countries that voted to condemn what Russia had done and called on Russia to withdraw. So there's a solidification underway. He has succeeded in ending the German effort to avoid military defense. And the new chancellor has indicated a dramatic reversal from what Chancellor Merkel's policies had been. And the Germans are now going to build up their military. A number of the NATO countries are sending arms and equipment to Ukraine. There are a number of volunteers starting to show up. So this could end up being a really long, drawn-out, bloody fight. It's not clear to me at all that the Russians are going to be able to clean up and push over the Ukrainians if the Ukrainians are willing to fight and if Outside forces are willing to give them weapons and take care of them. One of the dangers, which I'll be writing about in the near future, is that you do have with Putin somebody who could end up using nuclear weapons. And I think it could be very serious. Russia is a country with about 6,000 nuclear weapons. Their doctrine involves the use of nuclear weapons. They have a policy they call escalate to de-escalate, which would have them do something pretty outrageous and then back off and agree to negotiate. So you just can't tell yet. I'm sure that Putin has been very disappointed in the performance of his military, which turned out to be dramatically weaker than they thought it would be. The State of the Union itself, in addition to being overshadowed by what happened in Ukraine, 
was frankly just a very confusing, clumsy speech. The opening part had clearly been added to it. That's the part about Ukraine. And there, Biden missed one of the great opportunities that he had to turn things around. I'll come back to that. Then there was a whole section that was sort of like the Democratic 2020 campaign list of the things he wanted to say so Democrats would be happy. And then there was a section of things that they knew from polling that he should say to reassure moderates. So he said, we're now for funding the police, which, of course, the left wing of his party promptly repudiated. He said, we have to control the border, which after two and a half million people crossed the border illegally during the first year of the Biden presidency, I suspect almost nobody believed him when he said it. He said they were somehow going to deal with inflation. And then the things he talked about were nonsense. He mentioned that there are four major meatpacking companies as though somehow they're the culprits. It's not the meatpacking companies that are driving up the cost of meat. It's inflation. It's spending too much money in Washington, having the Federal Reserve print too much money. And all of that is coming back to roost. That's going to be compounded by the war because Ukraine is a very major supplier of wheat in the world market. And there's going to be a very substantial shortage of wheat. And that's going to lead wheat prices to skyrocket very parallel to the oil prices. Biden had a real opportunity to come out and indicate that things had changed and that therefore he was going to open up American oil and gas production, open up the shipment of American natural gas to Europe, do all sorts of things. Basically, what we had done years ago is drill, baby, drill, and the idea that you drill here, drill now, pay less, and that you could get gasoline back down to 250 a gallon. It's, by the way, now in some parts of California, getting to be an average of over $5 a gallon, by contrast. Instead, what he said was weird on three levels. One is he said, we're going to really take care of all this energy problem by investing in more green energy. There's no evidence that wind and solar, which is primarily what they mean, can possibly fill the gap. Then he said, you know, you could save money if you bought an electric car. Well, if you think about it, you're an average person. You're working at a job, let's say you're a flight attendant or you're a bank teller or you're a waiter or a waitress, you're driving a used car, the price of gasoline is killing you. And Joe Biden's idea is you should go out and buy an electric car. Now, how many Americans are going to be able to afford that? And then he said, oh, you'll save up to $80 a month at the gas pump. How much are you going to spend on more electricity? So this whole thing is just, you know, it's a kind of shallow kindergarten level, repeating a mantra that won't work very well. Finally, his answer to the price of oil and the shortage of oil was to announce that he was going to take 30 million barrels out of the American energy reserve. Worldwide, other countries are joining in. They're going to put in another 30 million. Now, to show you how trivial this is, 30 million barrels of oil, which sounds like a lot, is one and a half days of American consumption. That is 36 hours. Now, sophisticated traders in the world market know that 30 million barrels is a big political number and a tiny oil number. And therefore, as he announced it, the price of oil went up. In fact, I think it's gone up $17 a barrel since he announced it. Now, why did it go up? Because they were expecting him to go back to the Donald Trump policy of maximizing American production, getting us to be energy independent, making it possible for us to ship liquefied natural gas to Europe. 
when they saw that because of his left-wing environmental fanatics, that he was, in fact, not going to do anything that made sense, but instead was going to simply put a Band-Aid over a huge problem. They promptly sold the future oil at a higher price. And so Biden, ironically, by having such a weak solution, ended up increasing the cost of oil. And you add that to the other things that are happening with inflation. And I think the Democrats this fall have a huge problem because I think the economy is going to be just an enormous drag. And as you know, we still have a huge problem with our logistics supply lines. We still have ships sitting off of Los Angeles and Long Beach, California. When you raise the price of gasoline and diesel fuel, this is a country that delivers an amazing amount of its products by truck. Well, the trucks are now going to be more expensive. That's going to be passed on in terms of even more price increases. So I think that for the near future, the Democrats are in for a huge problem. And I think that they are likely to have devastating losses this November. So that was a sweeping overview. I admit I covered a lot of ground very quickly, but I wanted to give you a flavor of what I think is going on. And I thought, Claire, it probably would be good to take some questions and allow the folks who are the members of the inner circle to kind of direct where we ought to go. The first question, Newt, comes from Mark. Can the U.S. Congress pass legislation to override Biden's ban on U.S. energy production? The Congress certainly could pass legislation to override it. They'd have to pass the legislation. He would then veto it. Then they'd have to override his veto. That takes two-thirds plus one in both the House and the Senate. So it's a tough challenge. It could be done. If it gets bad enough, it probably will be done. But they're willing to lean on the Russians. I mean, it's really bizarre. At the very time we're talking about isolating the Russians and sanctioning the Russians, not only are we buying Russian oil, and Putin makes now well over a billion dollars a day, not a million, a billion dollars a day out of the price of oil and natural gas, which means all these other efforts to sanction his economy may be hurting somebody, but they're not really in the long run hurting the oligarchs or the Russian government. So in effect, the Biden policy on energy is subsidizing the Russians by raising the price of oil worldwide and the price of natural gas. And so that then funds the war in Ukraine and funds the Russian military. And that's a very real problem that we're faced with right now. And it makes me really wonder why we don't have some kind of change in the administration policy towards a pro-American oil and gas policy. But that is where we are. And it's a very real problem. Our next question, Newt, comes from Richard. How can we force Biden to provide air support to Ukraine? Well, let me just say, Richard, that I would be very cautious about providing direct air support. I'm very enthusiastic about providing aircraft, providing anti-tank missiles, anti-helicopter missiles, providing a variety of things for the Ukrainians to use. But I don't want to see American warplanes in the same space as Russian warplanes and have us shoot down some Russian warplanes. And then that could spiral out of control. That could lead to a nuclear war. The Russian foreign minister said, I think, yesterday that the next world war would be a nuclear war. The Russians are very clear about this. 
They have 6,000 nuclear weapons, about the same as we do. Some of them are missiles, some of them are submarines, some of them are aircraft, some of them land-based. Just before the war started, Putin engaged in an exercise where they had seven different kinds of nuclear delivery systems being tested. So they're trying to send signals that they do have the weapons. They have a doctrine which would let them use the weapons. And that if they were to start getting into a shooting fight with the Americans, they know that they can't contest with us head to head. And therefore, they have to change the game. And that's part of the way they would use nuclear weapons. And so I think we want to be really careful. I'm totally for helping Ukrainians. I am really against American forces colliding with Russian forces, because I think it could spiral out of control very quickly. Thank you, Newt. Our next question comes from an anonymous Inner Circle member. They ask, can Putin be accused of any war crimes for his actions in Ukraine? As a practical matter, it's very hard to be effective with that kind of accusation because the only people who really have been held accountable have lost wars. So he'd have to lose the war and not be in power. But I think as a factual matter, there's no question that the Russian policy right now targets women and children and non-combatants in a way which is generally considered to be an international war crime. So in that sense, he is engaged. But look, he's been a war criminal for years. He poisoned an anti-Putin Russian in London with a radioactive material that's produced only in Russia. So there's no question what happened. They'd recently tried to poison another guy and actually got his daughter with part of the poison. They both survived it. That was also in London. He's locked up his major political opponent now for the last two years, and tried to poison him. And that guy has come out against the war and really talked about the need to change the regime. There's no question that Putin is engaged in behavior. If you look at what they did in Chechnya, the way they bombarded and destroyed the capital of Chechnya, no question that they targeted civilians and they targeted women and children. And that was back in the 1990s. So I don't think Putin's very worried about being tried as a war criminal. I think what he cares about is raw power. And from his standpoint, he got Crimea. We did nothing. If he could pull this off, and we would eventually forget it. And this is a period, remember, where we say that we are trying to isolate Russia. But we apparently have the Russian ambassador in Vienna leading the talks with Iran about letting the Iranians get nuclear weapons. Now, this is just crazy. But the Biden administration, which doesn't seem to have a lick of sense, literally is following the lead of the Russian ambassador in Vienna while we're claiming that we don't want to deal with the Russian government because it's waging war. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. If you're the Russians and you watch the Americans call on you to sell them oil, and then you watch the Americans call on you to provide leadership in negotiating with Iran, you know, you just shrug off everything we say about Ukraine and say, oh, they'll get over it. And I think Biden makes it harder to put pressure on Russia when he does things like that. The next question comes from Robert. If we take back the House and Senate in November, what can be done to reverse the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline? Well, I think you certainly would have a huge fight in the Congress. And I think you will see the Republicans moving bills to reopen the pipeline and to do a series of other things. Presumably, Biden would try to veto them. Whether or not you could get a veto-proof majority, I don't know yet. If the Democrats are beaten as badly as I think they will be, they'll have the largest House Republican majority 
since 1920, and you'll have a pretty substantial Republican majority in the Senate. But that's not clear to me yet that it would be big enough. I mean, it will certainly be big enough to pass a lot of things. It may not be big enough to override vetoes. Thanks, Newt. Our next question comes from Miranda. How do you think President Biden's nominee to replace Justice Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court will impact the composition of the court and future decisions it makes? Well, first of all, I think she is a very distinguished jurist. She has been endorsed by a number of Republican judges, former judges, who know her and who've worked with her. You're going to get a liberal in the court because the country elected a liberal to the White House. Just as when Trump won, we were going to get conservatives on the court, which we did. We got three of them, and it changed the balance of power of the court decisively. The court on a good day is six to three, on a bad day is five to four. But that's conservative in a way it has not been, I would say, since before World War II. She seems to be a real professional. Again, they have to do due diligence. They have to go through her background. It is a lifetime appointment. And the Senate has every reason to be cautious and get everything out in the open. But my guess is that she will be accepted. And my guess is that she won't have any impact in the short run on the balance of the court and may, in fact, on a number of issues, vote more conservatively than the left expects, because she does seem to be a serious jurist and to take seriously the rule of law. So we'll see. I think he could have nominated somebody dramatically more radical and did not. And I think that from everything I've seen so far, she is a legitimate, serious nominee who will not by herself change the balance of power in the court. The next question comes from David. Will the UN do anything else to stop Putin? I don't know what the United Nations will do. Remember that the General Assembly votes are moral votes, but they're not binding. The Security Council, in theory, is binding. But Russia has a veto in the Security Council. And in fact, I think at the present time, Russia is chairing the Security Council. The chair rotates every month. So it was a very ironic thing in 1950 when North Korea invaded South Korea. The Russians were boycotting the Security Council. And so they weren't there to veto the resolution that sent American forces and allied forces into Korea to defeat the North Korean army. Had they been there, they could have vetoed the resolution. And that would have posed a higher standard for Harry Truman as president to decide because he was able, with the Russians gone, they were able to pass a resolution demanding that the North Korea withdraw or the United Nations forces go in and kick them out. And that would not have happened had the Russians been there. Well, the Russians are there now. They're not going to make this mistake twice. And so you're not going to get a serious Security Council vote because the Russians will veto it. You can get public relations votes in the General Assembly, which is good. I mean, I think when you see 140 some countries vote to condemn Russia, that's a good thing, given what they're doing. And it's the highest vote in recent times on a controversial issue. So uh, it was a sign that, frankly, I was surprised that you had that kind of commitment on the part of people who just voluntarily figured out what's going on and support it. The next question comes from Winston. Is there a reason to be optimistic when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine invasion? Well, tell me what optimism is. I mean, you're seeing cities bombed, you're seeing children killed, you're seeing a country torn apart. That's not going to stop in the near future. The best future would be a Russian withdrawal, which would then leave behind a lot of graves and a lot of destroyed buildings 
and a lot of blown up infrastructure. The worst outcome may be the Russians going nuclear, picking one or two Ukrainian sites and taking them out with a tactical nuclear weapon. Can I imagine that Putin has figured out this is more expensive and more destructive than he thought, and he wants to get out and is looking for a negotiated settlement? Yes. Do I think that he's going to get out for free? No. He can't go home and say that they failed. So he's got to find some excuse. What is it he can claim as a victory, even if it's only a fig leaf that covers up what really happened? But he's got to have something that allows him to claim that it's a victory. And on our side, we frankly want to stop him and make sure that people learn. We want Xi Jinping, for example, to never take Taiwan because he doesn't want to get caught up in the kind of destructiveness, which I think, you know, if Xi Jinping sees us being weak enough, he'll be tempted to take Taiwan. If he sees us being strong enough, it will really push him back and make him think a lot longer about taking Taiwan. So this is a series of big decisions in my judgment. Our next question comes from Andrew. Do you foresee the United States government enacting more severe sanctions on Russia, specifically in the energy sector? Well, this is the great crisis for Biden. He can't just take on the Russian energy sector because as long as he has this fanatic green approach at home of stopping American oil, stopping American gas, the prices would go through the roof. You'd be paying $10, $12, $14 a gallon for gasoline. Well, he knows he cannot go into the election this fall having brought you $12 a gallon gasoline. There'd be very few Democrats left in the House or Senate if that's what happened. So on the one hand, they're trapped by the need to have lower-priced energy. Their left will not allow them to have Americans produce it. So they've got to have the Russians produce it. And that's why his failure the other night in the State of the Union to announce that he was dropping all of his regulatory prohibitions against liquefied natural gas ports, and he was dropping all of his prohibitions about producing oil and gas in the United States. The failure to do that made the entire speech a failure, in my judgment, because that was the one decisive change that could have both protected the American consumer with lower prices and drained the Russian treasury and allowed us to then take very significant steps to cut off Russia so it never again has an energy weapon to use. Marion writes in, given their unconstitutional and un-American behavior, can Biden and Harris be impeached by a Republican Congress in 2023? I thought what the Democrats did to Trump was terrible. I think using impeachment as a political tool was wrong. I was involved in impeaching Bill Clinton, but that occurred because Bill Clinton had lied under oath, committed perjury, which is a felony. And as a Yale-trained lawyer, he knew it. And it was in a sexual harassment case. I just thought you had to hold presidents accountable for when they break the law like that. But I think the two impeachments of Trump were both political. Neither one of them had any substantive merit to it. In fact, what we're learning from the U.S. attorneys constant delving into it is that the entire Russian hoax may have been a deliberate, paid-for political lie with the Clinton campaign funding it and with help from the CIA and the FBI in a way that is just extraordinary 
and destructive of America. But I think that the correct answer to Biden and, and to Harris is to defeat them in 2024, not to get involved in trying to impeach them at the present time. I don't think you get the votes to impeach. I think unless there's a clear, overwhelming, compelling case, I think that it's important for us to keep our powder dry and to continue to work on substance and on policy, but not to try to destroy them individually. Thanks, Newt. The next question comes from James. Where do you see the United States after four years of the Biden administration in terms of inflation, cost of living, and crime rates for the American well, people? I figured that Biden would be so bad we didn't have to write a book that was anti-Biden. And we just completed and sent to the publisher a new book for this summer that is called Defeating Big Government Socialism. I think if the elections this fall go the way I think they're going to go, and if the Republican governors continue to be as aggressive and as risk-taking and as courageous as they have been, I think we could be in surprisingly good shape when Biden and Harris leave office. But I think that requires that we both win decisively this fall in the House and Senate and that we have people willing to stand up and fight for ideas for all of 23 and 24. I'm an optimist. I've always been an optimist, as Reagan used to say. Optimism has won in America far more often than pessimism. So I'm going to remain optimistic. And I think, as Reagan would say, you ain't seen nothing yet. We have a great future ahead of us and we're going to do amazing things. The next question comes from Felix. Why doesn't anyone destroy the Russian military convoy going toward Kiev? <laughs> I got into this conversation with Sean Hannity the other night because Hannity was going on and on about this huge convoy, this huge convoy. I finally said, Sean, they're called targets. I think this is one of the places where if we were turning over military aircraft and allowing the Ukrainians to use them, that it would be devastating. My hunch is that what they're currently doing, there's a Turkish drone, I don't remember the name for it. There's a Turkish drone that's very effective militarily, was used by Azerbaijan last year and skirmishes with Armenia. The Ukrainians bought, I think, 100 of them. They carry anti-tank missiles. They've been very successful. I wish we would turn over a bunch of predators and carry two hellfires each. Each hellfire can kill one tank. You know, if you suddenly found yourself as a Russian officer sitting in your tank, watching the tank ahead of you blow up, you would get out of the tank because you'd realize that the tank was not going to protect you. And I think that they could tear that column apart. And I'm a little confused as to why they haven't. I've both been confused by the logistics and competence of the Russians who apparently keep running out of fuel and have not got organized to sort of the basic road management that comes second nature to any American unit. And at the same time, I've been puzzled that when you have a huge column sitting there like that, that it hasn't just been torn apart because they literally are just targets at that stage. And I don't know whether it's because the Ukrainians don't have enough of the right kind of weapons or what's going on. I do think they have taken out a lot of Russian equipment. And the evidence seems to be pretty good that they've been killing tanks, killing helicopters, have apparently shot down at least two big transport planes, each of them with about 100 paratroopers on board. So this has become a much more expensive campaign than Putin thought it would be. And there's every evidence that that's going to get even truer. All right. We have time for two more questions. This next one comes from Paula. 
Do you think that Europe's more assertive posture toward Russia is a more permanent shift or will states like Germany revert back to their default position after the immediate crisis? Well, I don't think we know yet. This is where Biden is so destructive. If we were right now building liquid natural gas ports and saying to the Europeans, look, we'll sign 30-year contracts, we'll get you all of your natural gas, then I think the damage to Russia would be permanent. As it is, the Europeans are still going to be dependent on Russia, and particularly because they've given up on nuclear power in places like Germany, even though nuclear power is the cleanest, safest way to produce electricity. So, you know, if you disarm yourself and you are totally dependent for your economy on Russian energy, it's pretty tricky to imagine how the next five or 10 years are going to work. On the other hand, I do think the Europeans have been reminded very forcefully that Russia is a dangerous neighbor, that if you're going to live next to a bear, you want to be pretty well armed. All right. And now time for the last question. This one comes from Harrison. What's your take on the midterm primaries in Texas? From what I've seen so far, the best way to phrase it, which Carl Rove said today in the Wall Street Journal, is that the broadly conservative wing of the Republican Party was winning almost everywhere. And the radical wing of the Democratic Party was winning their primaries almost everywhere. And the biggest difference was a huge difference in turnout size, that there were vastly more Republicans turning out than Democrats. And that the enthusiasm among Republicans was enormous. So my take is that overall, we're going to do very, very well. And it's important to remember, George P. Bush, who is Jeb Bush's son and is the next generation of Bushes, if you will, is a terrific guy. He's now in the race with the attorney general. The attorney general is more explicitly conservative and was endorsed by Trump. But George P. has Trump pictures in his brochures, speaks very well of Trump, and is clearly more conservative than either his father or his uncle. So, you know, I think it's an argument that this broad Make America Great Again conservatism beyond personality is moving, and certainly in Texas, it was a good day for conservatives and a bad day for liberals. Thank you so much, Newt. Do you have any closing comments? Yeah, I just want to say that these are extraordinarily exciting times. I really appreciate a chance to hear from you and to listen to your questions. I hope you'll tell your friends we'd love to have them join us on the Inner Circle and continue to do this. So thank you. I look forward to reporting again in a few weeks. Thank you for listening, and thank you to members of my Inner Circle Club. If you'd like to become a member, please go to newtsinnercircle.com and sign up for a one- or two-year membership today. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.